seems the group is getting smaller and smaller, or everyone else is still in the Ravelin. Um, first, an announcement. I got some emails from some people who had problems with delivering the uh, exercise for uh, last week. Not 100% sure why we got these problems, but anyway, I've extended the period in which you can still submit the answer still somewhere Tuesday next week. Are there any questions? Um, I don't think there's a link for last week, otherwise I made a typo. Um, last week it was in the Ravelin, so therefore there was no uh, uh, video available. So unfortunately we don't have anything there. Uh, maybe next year we are here, but I assume you would like to complete this course before next year. So nothing to do about that. Next week, by the way, we have uh, the first... Uh, uh, say uh, 45 minutes. We have a guest lecture from people from KPMG. We've invited them a couple of times in the past and uh, I always at least like their presentations. They always told something differently. So I'm looking forward for the lecture for next week. Um, the second half of the lecture of next week we will spend on uh, giving feedback on the homework uh, uh, exercises that you had to do and uh, giving information about the uh, exam. Any other questions? If not, then uh, I'll continue today with uh, intrusion detection and intrusion prevention. Last week we saw what kind of attacks are possible. The week before that we even focused specifically on web attacks. Um, and uh, now we will look at the network manager's side of the story and how can you detect such attacks and what can you even do. Um, this is a topic where we have multiple PhD students doing their uh, PhD. Uh, we have only, say, one lecture for this, so I go over it very, very high level, and uh, there's much, much, much more that you can tell about it. What I will do is, sorry, I forgot the, no one said anything. Usually I have to switch on the system here. Uh, It was already dark outside, so no one noticed. Um, okay. Today, what we will do is uh, we will first look at um, intrusion detection systems. Then we will uh, have a look at firewalls, a mechanism to uh, block attacks, and then we also look at network address translators, which, are, which is a kind of technology somewhere in between. Um, but uh, I'll start with intrusion detection systems. And uh, basically, there are a couple of ways how you can uh, classify these intrusion detection systems. One way is to look at where do you install these systems. And um, you can install them on individual hosts in, the, in your network. So each host runs an intrusion detection system. And you can run them on a central place such that you can see all network traffic. Um, so I will discuss the differences between these two approaches. 
Then I will look at the ways how intrusion detection systems operate. I will focus on how can you capture data, how can you collect data. Uh, what models do we have for, from intrusion detection systems and what can happen once you have detected an intrusion. And um, finally, I want to talk about uh, passive versus uh, reactive uh, intrusion detection systems. But let's start with the uh, host-based versus network-based. And uh, of course, I'll start with the host-based ones. As uh, I just said, with host-based intrusion detection systems, you have one intrusion detection system per host. So on every PC, on every server, on every device, you run an intrusion detection system. You can compare that to a spam filter, uh, sorry, a uh, virus scanner. Uh, many Windows computers, at least, they run uh, vi uh, virus scanners. Who has um, a non-Windows system? Okay, roughly half. Who is running still on such system, a virus scanner? Who has a Windows system? Who is running on the Windows system, a virus scanner? Okay, this is, uh, this is somehow uh, what I expected. Um, you could also say that most attacks are targeted to Windows systems. So, unfortunately, if you have a Windows system, they are so popular that everyone wants to attack you. Um, Okay, but uh, virus scanners, you can consider them as a uh, host-based intrusion detection system. What you can also do with these uh, more, say, say sophisticated uh, intrusion detection systems, you can detect if there are certain rootkits on your system. Uh, a rootkit is a uh, program that uh, takes over the machine. Uh, we have different words, so we call them sometimes also Trojan horses. Um, and it makes itself invisible or at least it tries to make itself invisible. So if you have a Unix system and you type ls uh, to see what files are there, uh, or you do ps, what uh, processes are running, or whatever kind of uh, system uh, utilities, you will not find your Trojan horse. So it's not something that simply pops up, hey, there's now running something that I've never seen before. Um, as I just said, they are available under different names. Trojan horses is quite uh, known. And what you typically see is uh, you get infected in the following way. Um, someone tries to log in as normal user. And um, you can do that in multiple ways. Last week, Ramin told something about uh, SSH attacks. Um, if you have an SSH attack, then they can try all kinds of username password combinations, uh, sometimes called dictionary attacks. What's very popular nowadays is, always, uh, is also phishing. I think it was two days ago in the, in the 8 o'clock news that they had special items on phishing, and they gave some examples which, um, if you see them, you will start laughing, and you ask yourself, who is so stupid to fill that in? But there are still many people who have a magic belief in the Internet, and everything that happens on the Internet they consider to be the truth. So if they are asked to give their password, they'll do so. Um, so step one uh, for such Trojan horse, log in as normal user. Step two, get root privileges. There are many ways how you can do it, but often it goes via some kind of buffer overflow. And once you have uh, complete control over your system, you download and install such rootkit, and then uh, after that moment, you're lost. And this happens 
this kind of infections happens everywhere. Also on systems that we run, we sometimes find uh, to our embarrassment that these systems are hacked and that there are, there are rootkits running on it. Uh, what is also interesting, uh, just a side remark, um, and I'll probably give that uh, example also a little bit later. If you look at these kind of patterns, you can try to find these attacks by, yeah, indeed uh, monitoring what is, yeah, what is happening. If you monitor uh, SSH attacks, uh, then you see first that someone is scanning your network. Then you see that uh, someone is for a few specific systems where they do indeed run an SSH server, uh, having a lot of traffic exchanges. Uh, that is the, uh, uh, say, the phase in which you try the password username combinations. And after that, you usually see um, yeah, some communication and then a download from a certain website or something like that. And you can nicely see that, uh, say, at network level and uh, yeah, in that way detect these kind of uh, things. Okay. Um, if you have such host-based intrusion detection system, um, what is such a system then doing? It is inspecting all kind of log files that you have on your system. In Unix systems, you have syslog and you have all kind of logs. Uh, Windows also has <coughs> system event security logs. Um, so that is the uh, first thing that such a program is peri uh, periodically doing. Um, and what it wants to find out if there are critical system files uh, and if they have been modified. Now, remember that these um, Trojan horses, they want to hide themselves, so you can't find them with LS, PS, uh, this usage, and that kind of stuff. So they modify these pro programs. That is something they always do. So if they modify these programs, um, yeah, then you can more or less check if you see changes all these programs since last time. So the date last modified, uh, sizes can be changed, permissions can be changed. You can uh, create a checksum or a hash uh, over it and then you see that something has changed. So that is a way how you can, can detect uh, that something is really wrong on your system and that it has been taken over. Um, the problem with these host-based intrusion detection systems, however, is that they can also be compromised. And uh, there are some examples where um, the intrusion detection software was such that it um, yeah, was basically vulnerable for attacks. Um, and what you sometimes therefore need is to store all kinds of data like uh, the, the, the past, say, checksum or hashes of some critical uh, system uh, functions into read-only memory so that that data cannot be changed by the attacker. This is not simple, but uh, yeah, look at virus scanners. Uh, these kind of systems are quite normal. Let's now look at network-based intrusion detection. So uh, what you have with network-based intrusion detection system is one intrusion detection system per network. So instead of installing it on all individual systems, in the, at the university we have thousands of systems, probably 10,000 or 8,000. Instead of installing it on each and individual system, you have a central system that is looking at uh, yeah, all the attacks. And there are um, 
two ways how you can inspect the data that is flowing over the network. The, the most or the best known uh, way is to inspect the content of every, net, uh, of every packet that is flowing over the network. So, welcome. <laughs> Um, the, the best known approach is that you look at the bit patterns in every uh, network packet and you try to see if there's something suspicious there. And I'll show something on the next slide. Um, basically, it is something like if you see user root, uh, then oh, you're not supposed to log in as user root of the network. So if I see something like that, hey, uh, ring the alarm bell. But you can easily um, do something to fool the intrusion detection system. So if you are not, or if typing user root would be detected, well, put some characters in between. And for example, you make a, a mistake here and you do a delete and then the packet that traverses over the network does not have root here, but R-O-B delete O. So, um, yeah, if you have a stupid network-based intrusion detection, you will not detect it. I'll give some examples on the next slide, which are a bit more sophisticated. But anyway, one way is to look at every individual packet flowing over the network, and that is what many traditional systems are still doing. The other is that you look at uh, packets, and, um, uh, sorry, packet flows, so you don't look at individual packets, but you look at the combination of uh, packets. Um, you can do that by just yeah, looking at the packet headers, or you can use uh, something which is called NetFlow. I'll come to that back in a few slides from now. But the difference is that here you look at the contents, so the user data, whereas here you just look at, say, the headers or something that is even higher level. Um, Assume you have, um, oh, what would be the best approach according to you? Wake up. Well, who sees advantages and disadvantages of the first one? That you look at the content of individual packets. Yes? It is hard to do on hardware because you need dedicated hardware for that and it is more expensive. Um, yes, it is uh, certainly the case that um, this is more resource demanding than this. Yes. Are there more things? Yeah, if you do uh, encryption, well, you call it quite hard. I would say it's impossible to do something like this because you have completely random patterns. So um, if you use these nice IPsec kind of things or whatever, then this is never going to work. Yeah? Are there more? Maybe I should come back to what you said about resources. Um, if you look at resources, uh, what you see is that um, you have big or powerful machines to analyze the content of each packet. But the university has a connection to the outside world of 10 gigabit per second. And if you capture all that data and you want to analyze that on a single computer, you're lost. Um, 
There you can say, well, let's put multiple machines there. But what you see is at this moment that the growth of bandwidth, uh, so the speed at which we transfer data, uh, that is growing faster than CPU power. So even if you would be able to create something that is capable to capture everything on your network now, in five or ten years from now, that may not be possible anymore. Uh, if you look at networks, we will slowly go to optical switching, these kind of technologies where you can uh, transfer enormous amount of data. And that is certainly something that, uh, if you can't do switching anymore at the electrical level and we need optical switches, then you certainly can't analyze the content of packets anymore. So um, this is something which at a certain moment will have limitations concerning yeah, your resources. You can't do everything that you would like to do. Um, on the other hand, you may find several attacks here that you will never find here. So um, it's not that one is always better than the other, uh, but I think they rather complement each other. Let's uh, give an, say, a bit more sophisticated example of uh, what we have here. So um, I have here the same example. This is the intruder. You already saw that. This is the stupid user. And here we have the intrusion detection system. Um, you send here the following bytes, user, ru, and then an x, uh, oot. But um, you do that in different packets. So uh, you have to, this intrusion detection system, uh, every character is just one packet long. Yeah? And it will be at the receiving side taken together. But if you look at an individual packet, this network intrusion detection system, you see one packet with a U, then one with an S, then another packet with an E. Um, so you have to already remember state between different packets, which is not trivial, to say it mildly. But then you can still do tricks like that you include here a packet with a bogus checksum. So the checksum is not correct. The receiving side will drop it. But, yeah, here you usually would not check the checksum. So here you have to check the checksum uh, to make sure that you will catch this one. And if you think this one is still too simple, well, instead of using bogus checksum, we can also use the time to live field. So again, we send here a couple of packets, every character in a single packet. We have user, R, and we all put them on a time to live field, which is enough to reach the final destination. But we include one bogus packet here, which has a time to live field, which is so small that it will not reach the final system. So every system that is passed, then you reduce the time to live field with one. But this is high enough to pass the network intrusion detection system. So here you see a completely valid packet, but the packet will tra traverse further through the network, and then at a certain moment the time to live field will be zero, packet will be thrown away, so this bogus thing will not be arriving at the other side. So you can do lots of nice and interesting uh, tricks to fool the intrusion detection system. So this is not so simple as it looks like. Okay. Um, 
want to look now at how these intrusion detection systems operate. I've just discussed the difference between host-based versus network-based. I will concentrate primarily on network-based in the next slides. And I will look at uh, data capturing, uh, the different models that we have, and how we can make decisions. Um, and I will use this kind of picture for that. So here we have the data capturing. Then here we do something uh, where we basically match the, or compare the captured data to some kind of model. And how that is this second part that we will discuss. And then we will look at what will happen after we have found something which is suspicious. So I use this picture and I focus first on this capture stuff. Um, I already said you can uh, use uh, packet capturing and you can use flow capturing. Uh, with packet capturing you capture every individual packet traversing over the network, but I already said if you have uh, 10 gigabit, that is, this is quite hard. And if you have 40 gigabit, it's even much more hard. Um, but you can do it uh, in many cases still. What you usually use is the PCAP library, which is a uh, yeah, packet capture library, which is available on all uh, originally Unix-like uh, systems, but also nowadays on uh, Windows uh, systems. Um, but you should be able to operate at line speed. That may sometimes be impossible. So if you do this kind of capturing, you may have to do sampling. And with sampling, I mean that instead of analyzing every packet, you analyze, for example, one out of 10 packets or one out of 100. Um, sampling, for example, also with flow-based, uh, what I will discuss next, is even, yeah, necessary. You see SurfNet doing it, it's, uh, I think nowadays, one out of ten. In the past they did it one out of hundred, and Géant, the European network backbone, captured one out of thousand. So if you want to do intrusion detection, and you get only one out of thousand packets, then you may have a big chance that you will not see something. So speed, uh, equipment cost, um, that's all very important here. So instead of capturing every packet, you can also look at flows and forget about the contents of packets. And the most popular technology for that is called NetFlow. And uh, NetFlow is originally from Cisco. Uh, we run it on, say, all uh, campus routers, uh, for example. And um, it's now also standardized, or for many years already standardized by the Internet Engineering Task Force, and it's called IPFIX there. And um, the original NetFlow technology exports to the network manager data about every connection. So it looks at source IP address, destination <coughs> IP address, source port number, destination port number. If it sees this, the unique combination of these um, four fields, and basically I should also include uh, protocols, or it's, it's five fields. So if it sees something new, then it will, in the NetFlow collector, reserve some memory to say, hey, I've seen that there is a flow from this source to that destination, this port number, that port number, that protocol. It started exactly at this time, and I've seen until now one packet. And then, a few milliseconds later, it sees another packet, and then it says, hey, now I've seen two. And it, it increases the number of packets that it saw. It increases the number of bytes that it saw. 
Um, and um, yeah, that goes on till either the connection is over, but usually before that time, uh, you have already so much data that you export it to the manager, and so usually every 60 seconds, for example, you export that kind of data. Huh? When did the connection start between this source address, that destination address, that protocol, these ports? You export that data, say, roughly every minute to your, to your manager. For what kind of application do you think that they use NetFlow as well? Yes, but that's, that's certainly true, but monitoring for problems is very generic. Uh, they have some very special application areas for this kind of technology. And one is something that is very relevant for security students. What are... Um, Providers storing this data about you. What do they have? Like what? Yes. Yeah. So they have administrative data and financial information where you live, what is your bank account, what is your IP address, yes. What connections you have and what exactly do they store? Hmm? Yes, so they connect um, all source IP addresses versus IP addresses uh, that communicate um, what port numbers they have been using, what protocols they have been using, when they started communication, how much they exchanged, etc. And that is exactly the stuff that NetFlow is exporting. So um, what you see is uh, data retention stuff, uh, which is now something that all operators have to do, um, Yeah, relies heavily on this kind of technology, NetFlow technology. By the way, NetFlow was not designed yeah, officially for that. The idea to have governments or uh, operators storing this info came a little bit later. But yeah, this is a very yeah, important technology nowadays. And if I look at, uh, say, my PhD students, basically all PhD students do something with NetFlow data because it's very nice to do interesting things. Um, these are, say, the, the most important pieces of input. Huh? So you capture all the packets on the network, or you use NetFlow to analyze flow data. But there are other ways, honeypots, you can also consider them as a kind of intrusion detection system. Who does not know what a honeypot is? Who does know what a honeypot is? Do you know what a honeypot is? Well. My feeling, yeah, no, you don't know or you know? Don't know, okay. Then um, are you, what, are you Kerkhoff students or your UT students? Okay. If you would be Kerkhoff student, then you ha had to do a nice exercise on that. 
Basically, a honeypot is a, a device that you somewhere store on, uh, that you somewhere install on the network, that is uh, trying to attract uh, illegal traffic. What they usually do is uh, there are some IP addresses not used by other systems, and these honeypots they they listen to these IP addresses not used by any legal system, and so they assume that if something comes to this honeypot, uh, it is illegal, because otherwise uh, the IP address should not be used. And then they look exactly what is happening, and this is quite scalable. So honeypots, uh, it's, it's an important technology. But you can also use other tricks. For example, you can analyze the DNS server. If you know that a certain um, malware is downloaded from a certain place, I told you before, what is a typically attack pattern where you log in and then at a certain moment you download a kind of uh, rootkit from some place. And um, yeah, if they have uh, for this rootkit uh, a kind of DNS entry, then you can look at your DNS server and say, hey, there are some systems that uh, want to know how this DNS address results in an IP address. And I know that at that DNS address, there's malware. So this system must be infected. Um, so you have a couple of these uh, tricks uh, to, uh, to get input for your IDS system. Let's now look at the models that you have for intrusion detection. And um, there are basically two models. One is that you create a model of attacks. So you know exactly what attack, attack exists. And every time there's a new attack, you uh, enlarge your model. Um, for each attack, you create a so-called signature. So you know that this attack always looks like first this, then that, then that, then that, then that, then that, then that. Um, and you yeah, uh, capture that behavior in yeah, what we call signatures. Basically, what your model is then doing is if it sees something on the line, it compares what it sees on the line to your model. And here the model has all the, the bad stuff. And then you um, yeah, check if you see something bad uh, uh, on the line. And we call that rule or misuse-based systems. The obvious disadvantage of this approach is that it can only detect known attacks because it looks in its database have I, how, what is the characteristic of each attack. And so if you don't have in your database the characteristic of a new attack, you cannot detect it. So that is an, a disadvantage of this. On the other hand, an advantage is that um, you can be relatively sure that if you detect something which you think it is an attack, that it is indeed an attack. You have some systems that are quite known for you know, having this snort started as a complete rule misuse based system. It now has more functionality. But snort is probably the best known intrusion detection system that exists. You can put it on your own system, play with it. Um, but you can also have, for example, honeypots where you have a database with uh, known attacks. Okay, so that's one approach. You know all attacks, and you have modeled them. The other is that you have no idea about the attacks, but you have an idea of what is the normal behavior. 
So you know that if there are no attacks, you should see the following things happening on the network. And then you look at the network and try to see deviations from your normal model. So for example, yesterday one of my PhD students defended her thesis, which was on um, flow-based intrusion detection, where she used an anomaly-based approach and basically was looking um, over time at how for SSH traffic the change was in the number of flows, the number of packets, and the number of bytes. And if you have an SSH attack and you just look at these numbers, for example, number of flows, you suddenly see that, say, at five minutes past 12 in the afternoon, you see a sharp increase in the number of SSH flows. That is because there's someone scanning your network. And for each system that is scanned, you get a new flow record and you can detect it. And uh, so you know that the, in the normal case, the number of flows are roughly between, yeah, say, 100 and 200 flows per second. But then you suddenly see an increase to 5,000, and then you say, well, that's not normal anymore. That's a deviation from my normal model, so it's an anomaly. Um, this allows you to detect unknown attacks because you know what is normal and everything that doesn't fit the normal is suspicious. But what is the problem with this approach? The term, mm -hmm. Yes, one problem is how to determine normal behavior. How would you do that? Yeah, what you basically have, you have some kind of, say, uh, model, uh, often a kind of uh, um, self-learning model, which you have to train with data in the period that um, you hope no attacks. Um, and then the system learns, oh yeah, normal behavior is this number of uh, flows per second is between this and this, blah, blah, and, it, and it can learn quite some things. But you have to learn it. And uh, if you don't learn it, yeah, nothing happens. You know more disadvantages of this approach? Yes, you will have to retrain your model regularly. For example, because you have new equipment connected, but there may also be at a certain moment a new application getting very popular or some other application getting completely yeah, unpopular. Uh, if you see Facebook, for example, it is something that grew relatively fast. And uh, yeah, you may think this is, uh, this is an attack, but it is not an attack. Uh, it is something that people like to do. But it is something that grows very fast. So you have to continuously retrain your model to capture changes in what the users are doing. Um, you see more problems with this approach? Hmm? Yes, if you have slow attacks, so someone is not uh, changing the behavior from one second to the other, but it is doing things very slowly, 
it's very hard to detect that. Also distributed attacks might be hard to, to find, although depends on. There's something else, however. It may also be that um, you have something which is absolutely not an attack, but it is not normal. For example, assume that University of Twente uh, this evening uh, gets in the news because um, we have a big f fire uh, or there's, uh, there's a pop concert where we have the, the best players of the world. Then everyone is suddenly moving to, say, the UT uh, website, and you may see that it's an attack, but it's not an attack. We're suddenly very popular. Uh, so um, all kind of, um, say, defendable changes may be seen by the intrusion detection system as, as an attack, but indeed they are not an attack. So if you take this approach at the model of the attacks, you miss new things. If you take this approach, you may also have the wrong conclusion. So um, this is an interesting field for a lot of research. And what I said, uh, I've quite some PhD students doing research on this. Um, anomaly base, somewhat, uh, yeah, another slide. An example, what you can have is um, if the number of failed TCP connections attempts is above a certain threshold, then intrusion is true. And you may assume that a certain source when it's that source, that IP address, is setting up a TCP connection, it may fail. It may fail twice. It may probably fail three times in a row. But the probability that you fail 20 times in a row, that is not normal anymore. Right? Then you don't know anymore what you're um, connecting to. So this looks like a kind of scan or an, uh, an, an attack. So this is typically a kind of uh, say, anomaly-based um, uh, yeah, program that you can write. You check the number of failed TCP connection attempts, and you have then to learn at a certain moment what is the threshold, when, what is normal, what is abnormal. But instead of this programmed approach, you can also have a so-called self-learning approach. You have multiple techniques for that. Artificial intelligence, neural networks, data mining, um, all, say, um, techniques which are outside my daily research, but um, they somehow work. Or sometimes they work, but uh, in specific situations they will not work. So you can use these kind of techniques, but what was already said, you have to maintain the, the model of normal behavior, so you have to train it. And uh, what you see is that researchers are continuously coming up with new self-learning techniques, and they compare them to each other. But if they compare it, they need to provide data, to, and the same data, to different techniques to say this technique works better than the other. And what we currently have is only, say, one set of data, the DARPA 99 set, created uh, 10 years ago, which um, everyone is using who is doing research in this area. And then they say, oh, my technique is doing slightly better. Uh, and they still use this, this data set. But this data set is absolutely not representative for what we see nowadays on the network. So this is still an area where we are, um, yeah, what I said, there's a lot of research to be done. Many things are unknown. Okay. 
That was uh, anomaly based. Let's now look at something else. At a certain moment, uh, the intrusion detection system has to say this is an attack or this is not an attack. And if you look at the performance of intrusion detection systems, they usually have a measure for the number of false positives and a measure for the number of false negatives. False positives will say that the intrusion detection system says that something is malicious, but it is not malicious, it's normal. So you raise an alarm, fire brigade starts, but in fact there's no fire. So you want to have false positives as low as possible. On the other hand, you have false negatives. Negative, you don't do anything. So you don't raise an alarm, but there is fire. You have to do something. There is an attack. So these are two very important performance parameters for intrusion detection systems. But what you usually see is if you make a graph of how false positives and false negatives, how they uh, depend on um, sensitivity versus here the report rate. You want to have the report rate as high as possible. Uh, but if you make your system very, uh, or yeah, not very sensible, you will uh, have no false negatives. Uh, so the, the report rate here is very good. Um, also, um, sorry. If you have your system not very sensible, so you will not detect many attacks, what happens then is that um, you will not report um, something as, hey, there's now an attack, whereas it's not an attack. No, you hardly report anything. <coughs> so um, if you do not have a, a very sensible, sensitive system, um, yeah, there are many malicious things that you simply don't see. So here you have a very high false negative rate. If you then make your system more sensitive, so it is better in detecting uh, attacks, then what you will see is that uh, yeah, the false negatives go down with false positives. So the cases where you say, hey, there's fire, but in fact, there's nothing wrong, they also go up. So the trick with every system is to find somewhere the optimum. And that is a very hard problem. And it may depend on the environment. For example, the PhD thesis that was defended yesterday was especially looking at this kind of problems. And if you have an environment where you have first an intrusion de detection system that looks at all data, so 10 gigabits or 40 gigabit per second, uh, and then if it raises an alarm, um, tells the human manager to do something, then you will make this system not very sensitive because you don't want this human manager to have every minute an alert. Only if you're really certain that it is an attack, the human manager will, will be informed. If, however, you, your intrusion detection system is a front-end system and activates other more sophisticated, more tailored systems, probably working at much lower speeds, then you would like to have it very sensitive and report as much as possible. So it depends on the environment that you have where this optimum for you may be. Okay. Um, 
I've been discussing now host-based versus network-based intrusion detection system. I looked at operation. Now I will look at, uh, before the, the break, uh, the difference between passive and reactive intrusion detection systems. Nowadays, still many intrusion detection systems are passive. In the sense, if this is the Internet, this is the, the outside world, which is uh, not trusted, and here's your internal LAN, which you do trust, and immediately after your firewall, you have some kind of intrusion detection system, and there you um, yeah, capture data and you check the data towards some model, and you write in your log file if there has been an attack or not, and you raise an alarm for the for the manager. So later the manager can see that something went wrong. But the firewall is not changed. That is passive. If you have active, then the conclusion of the intrusion detection system will lead to changes in the, in the firewall. And if the intrusion detection system here sees something suspicious, it will no longer allow connections from this uh, suspicious source. So that is the difference between active and uh, reactive um, firewalls. If you look back at, say, uh, the honeypot that we have on the campus and Quarantainnet, and some people here know Quarantainnet quite well, um, what Quarantainnet is uh, doing, it is basically also a kind of reactive system in the sense that once you're caught by the honeypot there, uh, you will be put on quarantine and you can, in principle, not communicate except for uh, some sites to update your virus, virus scanners or download uh, the latest security patches. So that is how what we have on the campus already for many years is uh, yeah, a reactive intrusion detection system. Questions until here? If not, I have the feeling you have to wake up, so you need a short break, and we'll continue in 10 minutes from now. Um, maybe someone would be able to close the door. Thank you, Al. Um, next part, I will uh, focus a bit on firewalls. And um, yeah, what can you do to block malicious uh, traffic? And um, if we look at firewalls, then again, we have uh, multiple kinds of uh, firewalls. We can distinguish them based where they are running on a network basis or on a personal computer basis, so on each host or on the network, like intrusion detection systems. We can also look at which protocol level do they operate. Do they only look at, uh, say, uh, block network level traffic, or can they also look in the transport layer, or can they even look at applications? Um, and then I will distinguish between two main categories, the stateless, which are the, say, the, uh, the simple firewalls and the stateful ones. So that is what I will do. This time I will start with the network firewalls. Before the break I started with, the, say, the, the personal or host-based intrusion detection system, but let's now start with network, network firewalls. Um, if you want to make a picture of a network firewall, yeah, then this is the picture, this is the uh, evil internet, um, it's, everything is red. And, for example, 445, who knows what port 445 is? Samba. Samba, very good. So this can be the firewall of the University of Twente. Why don't we have, why don't we want Samba to be open for the rest of the world? 
can give two answers, the political correct answer and a very pragmatic answer. Yeah? We don't want to get sued for CampusNet. Yes, that's the pragmatic one. <laughs> Yeah, well, the official thing is that you see many uh, attacks via Samba, so and, um, so it's good to block that. Yeah? And you will usually don't share your Samba drives over the entire world, so only a local network, like what you mentioned. So this network firewall, it is uh, accepting port 25. What is 25? Yes, that's email. Uh, port 80, oh, that's easy. Web, Web yes, HTTP. Um, and so we block 445. And uh, okay, so here we only get uh, Web and uh, SMTP, everything safe. What are the advantages of um, such a network firewall uh, compared to having firewalls on each individual system? Very simple configuration, yes. You have centralized. centralized, yes, and therefore simple because you only need a single person. Um, are you only, since it is centralized, yeah, it's easy to, to manage. Um, who can give more examples of why this is good to have a network level firewall compared to a firewall on each individual system? Um, if I attach here my laptop, which has a virus, what happens then? Yes. So um, that is not what I how what you said is not say the strong advantage of a network level firewall. I would say. What happens if you uh, if you have a new machine and you want to install your operating system? How long does it take? Quite long. How fast will you be attacked? Yes, there have been studies that show that uh, if you have a system and you uh, download the yeah, latest service pack or uh, security patches uh, and it takes half an hour that before that time your system is already broken. So uh, it is already attacked and someone is in your system. So if you have something here, you can do with systems here whatever you want, but if they are not yet 100% protected, it's not such a problem because the firewall will keep out already many malicious things. Um, some other things that you can do with the firewall is that you are not just saying port 25 can pass, but uh, port 25 can pass, but only to the mail server and not to the other server. So if you look at the firewall of the <coughs> University of Twente and you send SMTP to a system within the University of Twente, the firewall will automatically redirect it to the, to, to the mail server and the mail server will run uh, a uh, virus scanner on it. Um, so that's also something that you can do with the network firewall. You can redirect certain traffic or you can 
allow traffic only for certain destinations within your network. Um, so this is network firewall is something that you basically see at uh, many uh, yeah, organizations. Uh, there are hardly organizations not running a network firewall. So let's now look at the personal firewall. Um, the personal firewall runs on the computer of the user. Um, it can have same filtering capabilities as the network firewall, but can it do more? Yes, such as. Yeah. So, what it can do is uh, have, um, distinguish between different uh, processes, programs, and for example, if you have on your system uh, a process which is mail.exe or something which has a certain hash, um, and you have abcd.exe, then your personal firewall may know that only this process is allowed to send or receive mail, and this one is not allowed. So um, you can differentiate between the different programs or processes on your system. That's something that you can never do with a network level firewall. Um, are there other advantages of this personal firewall above the network level firewall? These are all exam questions that I like. And I think this year I like them even more. <laughs> yes. Yeah, if it is a laptop and you move the laptop around, it will always be uh, safe uh, and you don't rely on yeah, your organization who is protecting your laptop. Um, I think you also mentioned earlier how if someone attaches to the network an infected system, if you have a personal firewall, you will be protected against this uh, infected system. If you have a network level firewall, you're not protected. Um, uh, other advantages? Most of you have seen these advantages, so you should know them. Yeah? Yes. Yes. Uh, assume you have an anomaly-based system. And the system detects something where it's not sure if this is good or bad. If you have a personal firewall, it can ask you, what should I do with it? And then you say, um, this, is, uh, this is not good, block this. And then the system can learn from that, and next time it will block. Um, and if you say it's good, then it learns from that, and next time it's good. You can't do that on a network level firewall, because the network level firewall get so much data for so many users that it's impossible to look at individual things and say, is this okay or not? But on a personal firewall, you can do so. Do you know an example of such a system that gives you feedback? Hmm? Yes. Something else? 
assume you don't have, uh, there are some people who are not running Windows. Do they have this kind of technology as well on their system? The answer is simple. Think about spam. What you see is your spam filter is usually marking something and say, is this spam? Or I think it's spam. And then you can click on it and then it learns from that. So um, yeah, you can see that also as a kind of uh, yeah, something that blocks malicious stuff. Okay, that's the personal firewall. Let's now look at what protocol level you can do uh, a firewall. And um, the first ones only looked at network level, then we moved to transport level, and now you go up to application level. Um, it's not correct to say that application level is always the best. It is correct to say nowadays that network level is a bit limited. So it is either transport level or application level, depending on what you want. So let's zoom in a bit. If you have a network level firewall, then you basically filter on the IP header fields. So you look at the IP packet, and only the IP header fields in that header are the ones you can filter on. So you can look at source IP address. Uh, something that comes from this source will not pass my firewall. Or you can look at destination IP address. Something going to that server uh, may pass, but if it's going to that client, it cannot pass. Or you can look at the transport protocol. If it is uh, UDP or TCP, you can make a distinction there. Um, so you can look at everything that's in the IP header is uh, yeah, data. And then you make a decision as firewall, and you say, I accept it or I throw it away, so you allow data to pass through the firewall or you deny it. Um, and just for terminology, whereas I used call this network level firewall, if you look at Stallings, it calls this a packet filtering router. Um, the, the term here says that this is already often implemented in routers. It is functionality that's very close to, say, the forwarding machine in the routers. Um, so it's easy to implement it there. Uh, you can uh, easily yeah, check these kind of rules at runtime. Uh, I said already it's very similar to what uh, the router is doing. So you have a simple implementation. Uh, but you can relatively simple fool it. Uh, it cannot deal with IP spoofing. Um, and you can easily uh, yeah, do something more sophisticated that a network level firewall is not able to detect. So then it's better to look at transport level firewalls. And transport level firewalls look at the, uh, the IP header, but also at the transport uh, header, TCP or UDP. So they can look at source port and destination port. So they can look at the application that may be behind. And they can also look at flags like SYN and ACK. Why would this be useful to look at flags? What can you do with looking at flags and then deciding if something is allowed to pass or is not allowed to pass?
Yeah, what you can do is you can uh, look at these flags to determine if something is an, um, yeah, an attempt to create a uh, connection, a sin, or if it is something that has an acknowledgement in it and is reacting. So here you see who is taking the initiative to set up a TCP connection, and if there's an act in it, then you know it's a response to something. So what you can easily say is in your firewall that uh, packets that do not have an act and only a sin can only pass the firewall if these packets come from my internal network. So all the systems in my internal network can create TCP connections to everything outside. But you block to all clients on your network, not the servers, but all, uh, not the web server and the email server, but the individual clients, uh, the, the personal computers, you block all the outgoing, sorry, all the incoming TCP packets that have only a SYN and not an X. So all the systems from outside the university that want to connect to a, a PC um, cannot connect to it. And that's something that you can very easily implement by looking at these flags. If you look at uh, terminology, then uh, Stallings calls this a circuit level gateway. Um, if you look at um, current firewalls, they often do something like, say, transport level. So network level is too simple, yes? Uh, co correct. So that is one of the problems that you have with uh, these kind of uh, things. What you have with IPsec is that you can usually, till the firewall, create a secure connection. But the firewall has to yeah, do something with it and um, uh, therefore has to end the secure connection. So it is not the end system to which you have IPsec, but to, say, the firewall that you have IPsec. Or you have to configure the firewall in such a way that you say, well, okay, I, you, you may use IPsec, but only between several, uh, certain systems. And then I don't check what is inside or what, I, what, what you do. But you are 100% right. IPsec uh, creates problems for these kind of devices. Then the, the third category is application-level firewalls. Um, a problem with, uh, let's go back here, with the transport-level firewall, you can filter on ports. So you can say port 80, uh, web may traverse. But what you see more and more happening is that all kinds of applications run over port 80. And also attacks go over port 80. And uh, how we had uh, two lectures ago, we had uh, web attacking. Well, the firewall will pass everything uh, on port 80, so all attacks go through. If you still want to protect then something, you have to filter at application level. So you create, for example, for the web, an HTTP proxy, which is looking at, say, your web request and is inspecting if the web requests are okay. If you don't do any... Uh, cross-site scripting attempts or SQL injection attempts. But you may have such a proxy for web traffic, but for other traffic like FTP, you need another proxy. 
And again, for every application, you basically need a proxy. So this is the application level firewall. It can look into the content of every um, communication, but the costs are very high. You have to implement, for each application, you have to implement such a proxy. What are the disadvantages of this approach? Yes, it's a lot of work, yeah. Speed drops. Speed is an absolute problem, but these processes are very complex. And the chance that you have a coding error in here uh, is certainly not lower than the chance that you have an error in your HTTP server. Because you basically have to implement lots of functionality that's also in the HTTP server. And uh, so this is something which creates many security holes again. Right? It's a very complex piece of software. You can attack this. It's very easy to do a uh, denial of service attack on it because this is a kind of bottleneck for everything that comes after. If this is protecting many HTTP servers behind, yeah, then this gets all the HTTP traffic of the entire, say, university. So um, this is a security problem. If you do a denial of service attack, then this one will not react and everything is not reachable anymore. It is also a very complex piece of software, so you can easily inject all kinds of attacks on that one. So application level firewall, let me summarize, it inspects the contents of each packet, but it knows about the semantics of it. Um, it can filter certain websites, it can filter viruses. If you a very good example of an application level firewall is the, is the virus scanner on the central mail server. It's looking at all mails and tries to analyze what is happening there. We have, yeah, does anyone has an idea how many different machines we have to filter the UT or to scan the viruses on the UT uh, mail? Yeah? 42. 42. <laughs> no. That is, uh, that, that is the, the generic correct answer, but not this time. <laughs> Yes, there are five of these machines, and uh, we, what I understood uh, is that we uh, always have uh, performance problems. Um, still, we have that. I think in the introductory lecture, there was something about how much spam we have compared to legal mail. What was the percentage of SMTP traffic that comes in that is spam? Yeah, 90, 95%, which is, uh, I think, rather high. So for these specific things, we do have application-level firewalls. Yeah? Um, application-level firewalls can also accept only trusted connections. So you can uh, have some machines that have uh, some certificates elsewhere that you, that you trust. Um, uh, what is also important is that if you do logging of what is happening, then an application firewall logs at application level. And that information is for the, the manager much more useful than, uh, say, the network packets. Uh, we have been doing a couple of tests ourselves, but 
if you see this packet came in, blah, 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 and you have no clue what it means on the application level, it's very hard to correlate certain things. So logging here is uh, yeah, quite, quite nice. But I said already, performance may be problematic. Uh, it's quite complex, and therefore it may become itself a security risk. Let's now look at firewalls and um, the difference between stateless and stateful. Um, stateless, it is uh, basically something that doesn't remember state, so it treats every packet in isolation. Uh, it therefore has no memory of previous uh, packets. Um, and what is important, it has to check the firewall rules again for each packet. So a new packet comes in and you check blah, 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 blah. New packet come in, you check again everything. So each packet is yeah, completely checked. Um, easy to implement. The code is simple. Um, but you cannot handle protocols that, for example, use random ports, FTP, for example. What would be the problem with FTP if you have such a stateless firewall? I can already tell you this will be your homework exercise for the next week. <laughs> yeah, if you look at uh, TCP, you have, uh, oh, sorry, FTP, you have two modes in which FTP can operate. But basically, the idea is that you have a control connection and you have a data connection. And via the control connection, you set up the data connection. But it works at different ports than, uh, yeah the control one. So you um, you have to correlate the control and the data channels with each other. And if you are stateless, you cannot correlate anything because you have no memory of what happened before. So FTP is problematic, stateless firewalls. Um, I already said the next exercise that you will have to do next week will be uh, related to uh, firewalls. Uh, you will have to make some drawings of tables and usually Firewall tables look as follows. Um, you have a couple of columns. First column tells you the action uh, that the firewall is supposed to do. It is, if it has a match, it is an allow or it is a block or uh, deny or uh, you have different terms for that, but the idea is the same. Something is accepted and something is not accepted. Um, then you specify the source IP address and the source port, as well as the destination IP address and destination port. And we look at uh, transport layer firewalls. So also the TCP flags can be written down here. If you have an asterisk, it means everything. Um, my question to you, does the order in which you have these rows, does that matter? What you say is 100% correct. There are two ways how you can, can use such table. One way is that you say, if I have a packet, I check the first line, and I don't care if it matches or not matches, I take then the second and I go through all the, all the lines. 
But that's not what's happening in practice. What's happening in practice is you have your packet. You first look at the first line. Does it match? If it matches, then you do the action that is written here, and you're, you're done. If it doesn't match, then you look at the second, uh, etc. And what you see here is at the end, I wrote down star, 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 star. Everything matches, of course, to this. Yeah? I don't care where the source IP address, what it is. I don't care about the source port. I don't care destination IP address. I don't care the destination port. And I don't care about flags. But throw it away. So what will happen if something doesn't match the first line and doesn't match the second line? It goes to the third line, and everything will be thrown away. So the default behavior of this firewall is block everything. What is the default behavior of the UT firewall? Who knows? Allow, yes. There has been a long discussion, or there's a discussion coming back again and again. Fortunately, we still have the last allow. Um, but there are people who want to have this as last line. If you have this as last line, what would happen? Every time something new happens that is not uh, already recorded in one of the lines before, data gets thrown away. So peer-to-peer -peer networks um, might be hard to operate. Uh, because peer-to-peer -peer networks, they fluctuate the stuff a lot. Uh, so um, you are really limited in what you can do on the network if you have to here as last uh, say this blocking line but there are many places in the world where they have this so they specify what you are allowed to do and everything else you're not allowed to do what is this example doing in words yeah. yes so here I specify I don't care about source address, but if it's port 80, then it's okay. So all web traffic uh, that, that goes to web server uh, is okay. And here I say all the systems that have my own IP address, a source, can do everything else. This is very simple. This is not how you usually would do it. In practice, how many lines do you think you will find in, in, in real firewalls? Yeah? Uh, that's what I expected as well, till someone told me it's roughly 500. And um, that turns out to be a very common number, hundreds of rules. So then you immediately see already the problem with this. How can I make sure that my rules are correct? Uh, it's not trivial. It's anything but trivial. So there. In the world, many PhD students doing their research on trying to come up with algorithms to make these rules consistent. Not easy. Um, so maintenance of firewalls is not so simple. Okay, let's now move to the stateful firewall. And basically, 
The stateful firewall has a uh, kind of, uh, say, um, history. And it can say something like, if packet belongs to an existing association, I'll come to the meaning of term association immediately after, then it's okay. Otherwise, check all the firewall rules. Um, and while checking, if I find that the packet may pass, so it is accept, then store the association in the state table, and if I don't find it, then discard the packet. So what you do here is you basically check the first packet of an association, and you go through all these rules that you have. And then subsequent packets that belong to the same association, you do exactly the same is what you did with the first packet. So you only have to do the testing of all these rules from the last slide for the first packet. Before, on the next slide, I show what these associations can be. Um, oh no, let's do it now. Associations can be things like TCP connections. They're the obvious choice. Uh, you see the first packet of a TCP connection and then, yeah, you allow all subsequent packets of that TCP uh, connection. But also things like UDP flows. So you can also filter on UDP associations. Or you can ICMP, uh, ICMP uh, request response pair. So um, an association can be more than a TCP connection. Let's now go back to the previous slide. What is important if you have yeah, such associations, if you have a stateful firewall, it is important to have a timeout mechanism. Uh, if something has not happened for a long time on that association, then throw that association out of your memory. Otherwise, your firewall needs to keep state of more and more and more and more, and at a certain moment it, uh, it just crashes. Um, so this timeout mechanism necessary. What you also see then is that certain connections uh, for example, SSH is uh, well known for that, can send keep alive messages. So you can have an SSH connection, uh, and if you don't use it for an hour, it can still every minute send one packet to the other side to make sure that the firewall will not time out your SSH connection. Um, yeah, I already said the connections in a kind of state table, so the attacker who wants to bypass your firewall can do a, an attack, SYN attack, for example, on this uh, firewall state table. This is not uncommon. This happens quite often. And then your firewall is not functioning anymore. Okay, I did already discuss the associations. Um, what you can do with stateful firewall is, for example, configure it to allow the associations initiated by internal systems but uh, deny associations initiated by external systems. So, um, and if you want to deal with FTP, then stateful firewalls are much better. Let's now look at the question where to put the firewall. Um, well, what you can often see is that you don't need just a single firewall, but you need multiple and not multiple of the same, but multiple uh, configured differently and operating at different levels. So, uh, for example, the, the entrance of your university or the entry of your company 
has a stateful transport level firewall to block the most obvious uh, attacks. But if you have critical systems like your mail system, but if you have a bank, for example, sample, uh, your, your web server where people do financial transactions over, you can put an extra application level firewall in front of these critical systems. You may not put this application level firewall in front of all systems because that's simply too much work. But the critical ones, you put an extra firewall in front of them. And yeah, examples of virus scanners and uh, or mail systems of these uh, application level firewalls. Um, yeah, you can also um, create in your um, network at a certain moment uh, different areas, one where you have a very high security and one where you have a very low security. Uh, they often call or talk about demilitarized zones. The University of Twente, for example, we use VLANs, which are virtual LANs, um, to distinguish between different kinds of traffic. So, for example, the traffic on financial information, which is quite important, uh, is on a VLAN, which is different from the VLAN that is used for campus net or experimental labs at computer science. All kinds of nasty things happening. Um, VLAN is yeah, a local area network. It's not working anymore. Hmm. It's a local area network, um, but it's not a real physical one, but it is a virtual one. So uh, there are some techniques for that, but I'm not going to discuss it in this uh, lecture. Basically, what you get with these uh, demilitarized zones, this is still working, is you have something here in front. Uh, where you accept um, some traffic, uh, not all, so you filter some in the firewall uh, something. Some, uh, for example, mail and web can pass through, but then you have a second firewall where you do additional filtering, for example, for your financial department. Okay, that was firewalls, and now I go to network address translators, which I do a bit faster. Um, but before that, you may wonder why I discussed network address translators here. Because they have a completely different origin, a completely different development history than firewalls. But still, at a certain moment, they, they move towards the same possible applications. Um, what is a network address translator intended for? Yes, you put multiple devices on a single IP address. Why would that be necessary? And why is your provider giving you only one IP address? Okay, who has any idea why you get only one IP address? Yeah? They thought they, they would, we would be running out of addresses. Will we run out of addresses? Not anymore, okay, because we have these network address translators. Okay, who agrees with that? We're not running out of addresses. I know already how you will react on my next question. Who does not agree? 
I know no one dares to say something because then I will ask, well, explain. What did you learn in the lecture on networking, the very first lecture in uh, telematic systems, uh, for example? We told you that there is a problem with IP addresses. We have 32-bit addresses, and 32 bits look like an awful number, but it's not. So, um, at a certain moment, we are running out of them. And we as university, maybe not. We have uh, 65,000 addresses as university. But uh, if you look at China, if you look at India, all these uh, emerging economies, they uh, have hardly any IP addresses. Uh, the US, Europe took most of them. And so we have invented IP version 6, but IP version 6 is not going very fast yet. Um, and in the meantime, we have to use network address translators to uh, reduce the number of addresses that we uh, yeah, have uh, currently in use. So the, out the, the origin of network address translators is to uh, to uh, use as little as possible IP addresses, so someone only gets a single IP address. Um, network address translators, they behave to a certain extent like an application layer, layer of firewall or application level firewall, in the sense that they modify your IP addresses. That was the goal of it. But if you look at firewalls, also application-level firewalls change IP addresses. Um, but different from application-level firewalls, in general, network address, trans address translators do not look at the content of your application data and do not modify something there or do not inspect it. Um, so to that respect, network address translators may be compared to transport-level firewalls. Um, Network address translators are also able to remember state and, like uh, we discussed before, accept only connections um, initiated from our internal network and not accept connections from the external world to us. So if you run Skype and you have a network address translator, you may be able to initiate a connection to the outside world, but the outside world may not be able to make a connection with you. There are all kinds of ways to to deal with that, but these uh, rules, they are very complex. Um, this is all, say, well-known stuff. Oh, yeah. If both sides have firewalls and uh, they both block uh, incoming addresses, then you have a problem and you may not be able to communicate. Um, the first slide that I showed may be known, but this is usually not known. That is the fact that we have multiple types of network address translators that all behave slightly differently. And uh, you get very strange effects sometimes. If you take a network address translator from branch A and you replace it by one of branch B, then certainly something works. Or if you put two in sequence, it suddenly works. Whereas one in isolation would not work. Um, and to explain that, you have to understand the difference between the four types of network address translators. And uh, I'll discuss them uh, in the following slides. First, the full cone network address translator. Here is the network address translator. This is your private LAN. Here you have one IP address. 
you uh, have multiple systems, but to the outside world you have one IP address. This is the public internet. And what happens, assume you uh, initiate, a, oh, I'm going too fast. You initiate a connection to a certain system. Um, and this should be not with one click. But you first saw the, the black one. It creates an, um, uh, yeah, connection, or it, it, it sends then data to this system here. But the full code net creates a kind of association between the port number and the IP system on your local network to here. And what will happen then is that something is wrong with the animation. <laughs> and in this way, it's hard to explain. Um, what happens then is if you send something back from this system with this port, it will work. If you send something back from this system from another port, it will work as well. And if you send something back from another IP address, from some port, you can still reach the same port here. So if you would like to run a web server, you can still somehow do it with this full cone net. But you should first send something from the web server to something else. And then this association, this red one, is established. So full cone net accepts traffic from all ports, from all internet nodes. If you now look at the restricted cone net, again, the animation is not working well. The same thing in the initially happens. You send something to another system, a certain IP address, certain port. The net creates an association. If you then send something back from this system, from this port, it works perfectly. And here you see the animation failing. If you send it from this port, it is uh, also working. But if you send it from that port, it's not working. Um, so it accepts traffic from all ports, but only from this system that you have connected to before. Then you have the port-restricted cone net, which, again, you send something, you create the association. If you send back exactly from this system, this port, it works. But if you send something back from another port on the same system, it will not work. It will block it. Um, so it accepts traffic only from previous port and nodes. And finally, you have the symmetric net. You send something, an association is created. It then behaves like yeah, what we saw before. Uh, if you send something from this node back, uh, this port number, it works. If you send something from this system, another port, it will not work. But what you uh, can do then is connect from your source system to this one and another port. And then it creates a second association. So what it does is for every um, remote system port creates a new association. And it's a bit unfortunate that the um, animation is not working. I don't know exactly why, but then it would be clearer. Um, okay, so these are four types. They behave slightly differently. And in practice, it causes many problems. Uh, people don't see the difference between these network address translators. 
What I have on the next slides, I'm not going to explain it, I'm just telling what it is. It is exactly this behavior of these four uh, network address translators on an example, but, such an, but this is not animated. So here you see exactly uh, what I showed on the previous ones, but here you can see it on a single, single page. So I have four of them, and if you want to understand later what is exactly happening, then take a look at these uh, slides. Questions on this? No. If you want to go home, then I wish you a nice weekend. <laughs>